0: Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Thursday night, reflecting into the richness of our faith. As you know out there, if you've been listening to this radio program, Thursday night is about apologetics. And as I do I have each and every Thursday uh, night, uh, I have Rob Sheridan with me. Rob, it is good to have you with me tonight. Great to be here in this Easter season. Yes, amen, hallelujah. You know, Rob, we are still in the same chapter uh, where we left off from last week. We were talking about the saints, we were talking about mediation, and uh, halfway through Scott Hahn's chapter, uh, he brings in Mary. And so what we are going to do tonight and next Thursday night is discuss Uh, Just not Mary in the New Testament, but also just reflect uh, philosophically, theologically on uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary of Nazareth. And I thought a way we can get ourselves going tonight is to uh, look at four major events uh, where we find Mary in the New Testament. And so those four are uh, the Annunciation, Luke 1, verses 26 to 38... Uh, the wedding feast at Cana, John 2, verses 1 to 11, and Mary at Calvary, John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, and then Mary in the upper room, Acts one thirteen, 13, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, if you take that one to Pentecost. So, a question I get often is, well, Mary is, is not found in Scripture a whole lot. I mean, it doesn't seem... Joe, that Mary would be relevant if, if she wasn't in Scripture very much. And we must always remember something, Rob, that uh, there are very few people actually accepting Jesus as the Lord and Savior, let alone this, this mother. So we have to be mindful of the first century and appreciate the historical situation. That being said... As we're talking about where Mary is in Scripture, think about the places and the events that I just spoke of. The Annunciation, right? And of course we can go to the birth of Jesus, the wedding feast at Cana, Mary at Calvary, and Mary in the upper room. So you have Mary at the conception and the birth of Jesus, of course, she's the mother of God. You have Mary there present at our Lord's first miracle. Uh, You have Mary at the foot of the cross, so our Lord's death, and of course Mary in the upper room, in the middle of the room, as many of the catacombs would portray, bringing down the Holy Spirit, so the birth of the church. So you have Mary there present at the conception and birth of our Lord, the first miracle of our Lord, our Lord's death, and of course the birth of the church. These are significant points in the life of Christ, and there is the mother. So when we're talking about... Mary's uh, prevalence in the New Testament, we must be mindful not so much to the quantity of how much Mary is in Scripture, as to the quality of uh, when we find Mary in Scripture.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think it's also important for us to think about when we find Mary in the history of the universe. Yeah. God, you know, he sees all of time and space at once. He's infinite. He's like a helicopter over a parade. He sees the beginning. He sees the end. The universe is billions of years old, science tells us. Billions of years. God created it. And he knew when Jesus was going to come. And he knew how he was going to come. And he picked Mary. He chose Mary. So to say that Mary is, is not relevant, wow. I mean, out of, out of all the future, out of all the mothers who could yeah. have been born, he chose Mary. I, I think about in, in choosing my wife, all that went into that. I had to think not only how she was going to be the mother of my future children, but also the mother of, of, of the daughter I, I had before we met. Mm-hmm. And I had to think about all those qualities that make a good mother, that make a good wife. You don't think the perfect God, who is so much more perfect than me, yeah, is gonna pick the pinnacle of His creation, the most beautiful, most wonderful, most
0: pure mother
1: out of all of existence? No, He's gonna pick perfection, yeah. His son.
0: And that's what He does, you know. And that and that's a beautiful reflection, Rob, and it takes us to this first biblical narrative with Mary in it in the Annunciation. You know, Luke 1, 26 to 38. And I'll highlight Luke 1, in this angelic salutation of the angel Gabriel to Mary. In particular, the greeting and the words he uses. You know, he does not say pleris caritos, full of grace, which is what we uh, read in Acts 6. Uh, verse 8 and following. If you were to go into uh, Acts, penned by the same author, Luke, right? He uses this Greek to speak of a man, Stephen, who is the first martyr of the church, who's full of grace. No, he doesn't pick Pleiwis kartos; He picks K. Kartomene. What's so significant about this, Rob, is this kai Cartomene is a perfect participle, which is an action completed in the past. What Luke is telling us is that this woman that you speak of, Rob, as God is looking down and he picks this woman from Nazareth, is the crown jewel of all creation. We could say God rolls up his divine sleeves and he creates his masterpiece, perfection. She who was endowed with the fullness of grace from the beginning. From the beginning. You know, we we read those words. Hail, full of grace. Isn't it fitting, Rob, that our salvation begins with those words, that we might offer these words back to God, mindful that we are simply praying scripture. Hail, Mary, full of grace. This is the only biblical instance where someone is not addressed by a title think about that for a second it's the only instance that it points to something and what does it point to the significance of this moment as it relates to the conception of our lord of course but also mary what is jesus doing he is simply honoring the fourth commandment what's the fourth commandment out there (laughs) what's the fourth commandment honoring his mother he's honoring his mother you know, I get a lot of questions, Rob, in regards to some of the technical language in this verse. You know, she seems to be doubting. Why is she doubting if she's so perfect? The, the language is not, how can this be? The best right is, how will this be? How will you do this? I think we've spoken a little bit to this before. The juxtaposition between Zechariah and Mary. Zechariah questions, he's mute, right? Well, what's the difference? He doubts. He questions in the secular sense of how we question. We doubt. Why question that? Well, when you say that, it means you doubt it, right? Mary questions in its truest sense. Understanding that the word question means to seek to understand, and it's Latin. So she's seeking to understand. You're going to do this. I just don't know how you're going to do this. I know not man. How are you going to do this? How will this be? You see. This is what is at the heart of Mary. She is theologian par excellence. We define theology as fides corinth intellectum, faith seeking understanding. She's been, she has this gift of faith. She's seeking understanding, right? How are you going to do this? You know, what? we roughly say she's 14, 15 years old. I mean, think about that, Rob. Well, man, she. At that age in that
1: culture, she was in a bad way. Yeah. That, that is taking her own life in, into her hands and the trust that she had to have in God in that, in that moment because she very easily could have been uh, put out on the streets by, by her betrothed Joseph. She could have been stoned to death. This was, this was not uh, a good position to be in, but she takes it with such faith and with such grace. And, and you talk about the juxtaposition with, with Zechariah, I also like to look at the juxtaposition between uh, Abraham and Sarah because yes. they get a very similar message yep. um, from from God. God's speaking to Abraham, and he says, your wife will conceive in her old age. And Sarah's in the tent, and her response is to laugh. She laughs, and then God says, uh, did you laugh at me? And she says, oh, no, I didn't laugh at you. She lies to God. Yeah. <laughs> but Mary, yeah. faithful trusting, not, 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 you're not gonna do that, but how? It's like, it's like when your mechanic says he's gonna fix your car. Oh, well, how are you gonna do that? Well, I'm gonna do this.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's her response.
0: Sarah was uh, found with grace. Mary was full of grace. Two different realities, two different women, two different responses. Um, That's what is at the heart of it, and I I really appreciate that too, Rob, you talking about cultural significance of it. She's surrendering to God as being the mother of God, but at the same time, she's surrendering and submitting to everything that that means. When we surrender to God in our own lives, what do we find on the other side of that surrender? What do we find on the other side of that submitting to God's will? Persecution. People pointing fingers at you. You see, when we submit— unconditionally, without calculation to God's will for us, there will be persecution. Christ promises us this in his uh, Sermon on the Mount at the end of his Beatitudes. You see, Rob, Mary is the model disciple. She is interiorly disposed to serve God. You know, John Paul II, soon to be St. John Paul II, right, Uh, once spoke of this interior attitude of faith that belonged to Mary. What was the interior attitude of faith? To be in relationship with God, but not yet in action. It highlights this word disposition. Mary was in relationship with God. She was properly disposed. So when the angel Gabriel comes to her, what happens? She says, fiat. Yes. And so it is. We need to establish, you spoke of trust, Rob. We need to build up this trust in a relationship with God that we might be disposed when he calls us to greatness. Because when we appreciate that, then we'll begin to appreciate Mary as a model disciple. This is why, this is why Billy Graham says to everyone out there, he has said this twice now, We need to start honoring Mary. Remember what we talked about last week. We don't idolize Mary. We honor her. We turn to her as a vessel of one who intercedes on our behalf. Now, that being said, as we talk about the Annunciation, I do want to make sure we speak to the wedding feast at Cana here, Rob. Uh, Another series of, of verses so let us go here, Rob, to the wedding feast at Cana. Again, chapter 2, verses 1 and 11. And the third day there was a marriage, in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. So now when you look at those verses, certainly there seems to be uh, some undermining going on here a little bit. Well, what is Jesus saying? Well, it is to first say that the title woman, while it appears to be a term that might defy today's modern standard of etiquette, It was actually, Rob, a term of endearment, a term of respect in Jewish antiquity. Now, that certainly can be lost uh, today in our modern rendering of the text, but this is why we have to get into the literal sense of Scripture. Uh, We we have to get underneath the text, uh, and we do that by appreciating, once again, as we've already noted, the historical context. And what of this language, uh, what to me and to you? This is an idiom. An idiom is something that, that cannot be understood, say, from its face value elements. You can go into a number of Old Testament texts. You know, Second Kings 3.13 comes to mind, where in the Old Testament idiom, there would be direct compliance, even if it would appear there was some sort of miscommunication going on. Right. In verses 7 and 8 of that series of verses, John 2, verses 1 to 11, our Lord complies, Rob. Something deeper is going on. Right, This is why our Lord points to the hour. If you look at this, these uh, words, Rob, he says, My hour has not yet come. That seems like a very embellished statement, a very exaggerated response. But certainly, this is John's hour. He develops this theme of the hour, where wine is connected to Jesus' appointed hour, which is beyond some historical hour, and of course, tied to the Eucharistic liturgy. And most importantly, we have those words from Mary, do whatever he tells you. Mary's last words in the New Testament, which is really it's a microcosm of mary's spiritual testament to man do whatever he tells you and therein lies i think uh more than just a kernel of truth about who mary is in scripture and ultimately who she is in the church this is her fundamental role pointing to her son do whatever he tells you and he does not she mediates divinity she mediates divinity.
1: Oh, this, this story, um, <clears throat> I, I went to a conference many years ago, and uh, Father Stephen Barham was speaking about this, and, and he was talking about the wedding feast and really broke it open historically for me. Um, and talking about the cu- cultural significance of not having wine and what a scandal that was for, for, the, for the wedding. Um, And we go to Mary with with our scandals, with with our needs. With We don't have wine. We're spiritually poor. That was what not having wine meant. You were spiritually poor. We go to her with our spiritual poorness. Mary takes it to Jesus. They have no wine. She comes back to us. Do whatever he tells you you. That's her role. That is the role of Mary right there at the wedding feast of Cana. She advocates for us when we are spiritually poor. And then she tells us to do what her son wants us to
0: do. It's interesting, Robin, sacred scripture, joy. And I think many of our listeners can, can appreciate this point for, for our listeners who have been to a wedding. Uh, wine is synonymous with joy, right? So in this episode, in this narrative, you have uh, Mary intermingling with joy. And I, I love this because ultimately, what did we just talk about in the Annunciation? Rejoice! oh, highly favored one. Hail, full of grace, rejoice! You know, joy, as Pope Emeritus Ben 16th penned so beautifully in his, his work, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the infancy narratives, talks about how joy is the first proclamation of the New Testament. So it is right that you have Mary at this wedding feast mediating uh, joy, ultimately, is what she's doing. I think there's a beautiful reflection there as we Uh, Spend some time with it. So, in this passage in the wedding feast at Cana, we are made to see that a lot more is going on here than just at what's face value. And I know it's easy, Rob, to just read some of these verses that we're talking about now and just kind of brush over them softly and not think a whole lot about them, but we need to, especially if they're holding us back in our understanding of Mary. So, that's why we We pause and we talk about these things. And so what about uh, Mary at the foot of the cross? Well, let us go back to John here to appreciate what's happening at the foot of the cross. John sees himself as an icon for all Christian disciples. He thinks in this universal context, Rob. So when he says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, and then ultimately John, who is the beloved disciple, takes her into his home or heart. He represents all of Christianity, essentially representing, Rob, you, me, and all of our listeners out there. Tradition has it that they went back to Ephesus, and, and, and certainly John would have spent time there in Ephesus. And so uh, John is a savvy teacher, And he wants us to see this for what it is. You were just talking about time, Rob, God looking down on a timeline. Well, I want to kind of take that same thought. I'll dovetail you here a little bit. If you knew that you were going to die at a particular point in time in history, you would probably think about what you wanted to say and for all of us, we know death is coming. And when, when we reflect upon it carefully, I think we can all agree that whatever we say at those last moments are usually tied to the people that are most dear to us and the things, things that we treasure, the things that we've longed to say all come out in those last moments. And so here you have God, the Lord of history, who has all eternity to contemplate, to consider, to think about what it was he wanted to say on the cross. And so we famously have his Seven Last Things that many of us have just heard, Catholic, non Catholic, over this last week. And I couldn't help but think, as I've thought before, Rob, on Good Friday, gosh. Our Lord, how he must have longed to give you and I a mother, a spiritual mother, and how he uses the great pulpit on the cross to teach us all of these great things that he teaches us on the cross, because that's when he has our attention, that he would give us his mother. I mean, think about that, Rob that he would use the cross to give us his mother. When everyone's looking, when all of history looks to that one moment in history, that defines history, Rob. We can change B.C. to B.C.E. and A.D. to C.E. That is before Christ and year of the Lord to before common era to common era. There's still the corpus on the cross that defines history and that's the moment he uses to give us his mother oh fortunate fall oh happy fault call it what you will that day that hour to give us his mother it's worth reflecting upon
1: as an artist one of the one of my favorite pieces that i've ever drawn was a gift i did for uh, the late father terry
0: and it was a picture
1: of, of Mary at the foot of the cross, and it's something I love to meditate on because this, this is when we were given such a great gift of, of, of the mothership of Mary. If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then Mary is our mother. My conversion came through Mary as, a, as an agnostic young man at the end of my rope. It was through the rosary before I even came to Jesus, just praying it one night in desperation, hoping for something. Mary took me by the hand. She led me to the foot of her cross with her son. And, 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 and that's all I can say about Mary. She has, she's led me to her son. Everything we say about Mary leads to Jesus. It leads to the foot of the cross. It says nothing about her, everything about her son.
0: Yeah, as you speak to that, Rob, you know, uh, the Venerable Fulton Sheen you know, once said that no mother being praised for her son's achievements in battle takes away from his son's achievements. Therefore, it is the same with Jesus and Mary. You know, you said it. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is a family of God. Every family needs a mother. And, and Mary is, is really the archetype to the church's mother. Uh, and, and this is what we we speak to, that we turn to her as a mother. The woman who God picked, hand-picked. This is not something that we're creating, but something we're interpreting. You know, it's interesting, Rob, when you go into the catacombs, and you go, you know, the catacombs, those where the first Christians uh, lived, so as to avoid persecution— they used, to, um, they used to catechize in art, because again, remember, you know, 99% of the first Christians could not uh, read or write, so it was always done through art. And uh, all over those catacombs, Rob, you can still go there today, there is Mary. And one of the most powerful pieces that I've seen was Mary in the upper room, and we talked about Pentecost Acts 13 there is Mary in the middle of the upper room among the, uh, the first apostles and disciples. And so you have these beautiful images by the first Christians. Those who, who heard the apostles speak, right? Uh, paint these images of Mary in, in the middle of this room with her hands up bringing down the Holy Spirit. If you were to go into Acts 1, verses 8 and following, right before uh, the event of Pentecost, you have uh, the language of the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles. The same exact language that Luke uses in the Annunciation. He wants us to see the importance of Mary in the early life of the church. There she was, in the middle. And that's very important for us to to see it for what it is. And this, of course, is the last time we see Mary in the New Testament bringing down the presence of the Holy Spirit. And amen to that. Any closing thoughts, Rob?
1: Well, just we often talk about Mary, mother of Jesus, but we forget about Mary, spouse of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And yes. just the, that relationship there bears some
0: consideration. Amen. Amen. When, when the Holy Spirit is the protagonist of all Christianity... Absolutely, Mary. that that bears consideration. With that, Rob, let us close with the Hail Mary. Mindful that when we're praying the prayer, Hail Mary, it's a scriptural prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. That's the Magnificat. Holy Mary... Mother of God, the Nativity, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, Mary. (laughs) This is what we're praying when we pray to Mary, just for her to intercede. So that's our closing prayer. (laughs) Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God bless you.
1: been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at JMJ at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.